Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. For the past few years, Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko have been teaching the most popular course at the University of Notre Dame. It's an introductory philosophy class entitled God and the Good Life. In their new book based on the course, Sullivan and Blaschko contend that virtue ethics, an ancient tradition dating back to Aristotle, offers a powerful, underappreciated method for gaining new insights into age-old questions. They speak about the book with assistant editor Griffin Olenek here on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Griffin. It's good to see you today. Hey, Dominic. Uh, so uh, you got to speak with Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the conversation we're about to hear? Sure. Well, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, they're both philosophers at the University of Notre Dame. They've also both written for Commonweal before. A few years ago, Paul wrote about his troubling experiences in a Catholic seminary, while Megan wrote a beautiful meditation on the figure of Lazarus, the concept of time, and the afterlife. What drew me to their book and what I think listeners will find most interesting is that they describe philosophy not so much as a dry academic field, names, dates, and a long list of competing viewpoints, but as a living method, something anyone can and in fact should practice. It's personal but also rigorous, and it involves asking questions and having good conversations about things we care about with people we care about. Philosophy is also unsettling and in a good way. When we spoke over Zoom back in December, I noticed that Megan Sullivan had a prominent banner in her office reading Corrupt the Youth, which is, of course, the crime that Socrates, the original Greek philosopher, was condemned for. The point is that asking serious questions and trying through sustained conversation to arrive at the truth, in other words, doing philosophy, is an activity our culture tends in various ways not to tolerate. It's something subversive. So I was glad to have the opportunity to ask these two great philosophers about how they practice and teach philosophy. Well, this sounds really great and kind of like what we do here. So let's take a listen. Sounds good. Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko, thanks for being here on the Commonwealth Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you guys. Since 2015, you've both taught an introductory philosophy course at Notre Dame called God and the Good Life. It's now the most popular course on campus. Tell us about how you designed it. Why was it necessary? And why were students so interested? I've been teaching in Notre Dame for about five years when Paul and I started working on the God and the Good Life project. Paul was a PhD student at the time, but was also working quite a bit with me on how we teach our large required intro to philosophy course. Notre Dame is, like a lot of Catholic universities, a school that requires all the students to learn philosophy. But we had really lost touch with why there was a philosophy requirement at the university. Like, why should students have to spend their time learning about Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Descartes rather than taking a cool literature class or taking an art class that they were really excited about? That question had really started to weigh on us. And we also noticed with the students that we were interacting with, they had a lot of good life problems that were philosophical problems weighing on them. What kinds of jobs were worth pursuing? What kinds of families should they be hoping for? How do they deal with burnout? But they weren't identifying those as philosophical problems. They thought philosophy was really confined to the kinds of thoughts and worries that dead people in Europe dealt with and not the kinds of problems that they were living through. So that was really the impetus for the class is thinking, all right, we've got these students two to three times a week for 14 weeks and have a chance to really use philosophy to speak into these kinds of needs. Why don't we totally redesign the class to try to show them that there might be answers to some of these questions that are really weighing on them? 
I'd say too, just to add a bit, I noticed that as we were presenting some of the, the topics that I care most about in philosophy to our students, they'd kind of get this glazed over look and they'd think like, ah, okay, like, you know, epistemology, like, like what is that? Why should I care about how I form my beliefs? And when, one bit of the disconnect that I noticed is even in college for me, and I had a great philosophical education, I would go to my philosophy classes and we talk about sort of the academic issues that are being debated in that day. And then I'd go home and I'd just get on YouTube and I would just start watching lectures or debates or arguments. And I was just really finding that the connection to my life was just happening in these discussions, these really vibrant discussions that were happening on the internet or, or in the cafeteria or with my friends. And so one of the, the design goals that we had with the course was to bring that energy to kind of figure out where are students doing philosophy and then teach them like, that is philosophy. You're doing philosophy when you're staying up till 2 a.m. debating mortality with your friends or showing them that the everyday issues that they're dealing with, that they're worried about, those are philosophical and, and you can approach those as a philosopher. You write that two of the best tools for leading a good life are learning to ask good questions and learning to have good conversations. What do you think are the characteristics of each? Something we spend a lot of time on with our students and we grade them on, it's a built-in part of our class, is the ability to ask better questions. And we get this from Socrates, the founder of philosophy, who was killed by the Athenian government in 399 BC because he was asking too many questions. But one of the distinctions we want to give our students is the ways that questions are used for or against other people or your relationships with other people. One kind of question that, you know, is very common in our political life right now, we might call the prosecutor question. It's a question that is aimed to get somebody on record as having a certain view or position so that you can then critique or attack it. So I see Paul and I really want to get into it with him about why he's a vegetarian. So I say, hey, Paul, I've got a question for you. Just asking a question. Why do you hate animals so much? That's not really a question because one, it just presupposes I already know what Paul's going to say. And the point is for him to like put his reason on the table so that then I can argue with him about it. That is not a philosophical use of questions. It might seem like philosophers do this because we're really logic-y and nitpicky. But a philosophical question is, as we teach our students and try to show the art of in the book, is what we call a dinner party question. This is a question you ask to get the conversation going. It's been a little while since a lot of us have been to dinner parties. But at a really great dinner, the host or an excellent conversation partner will ask the group an open-ended question to try to learn something about who's in the room that they don't already know. So let's suppose I wanted to ask a dinner party philosophical question about Paul's views about animals and food. I might say, Paul, what's like the first time in your life you can remember having a view about why the food you eat might matter? Like, when did that start for you? I don't know what Paul's going to say next. No matter what, I'm going to learn something about where Paul's reasons are, and I'm going to learn something about him. And I don't know what I'm going to attack yet, or I don't know what move I'm going to make next. I'm genuinely open to learning something about the world that I just didn't already know. And that's the art of a philosophical question is curiosity about realizing what you don't already know and really wanting to figure it out. And hopefully down the road, as I ask more and more of these dinner party questions of Paul, we're going to develop a relationship like Paul's going to feel like I actually do care about his views about animal ethics. He might ho hopefully trust me a little bit more for caring about the truth on this question as much as he does. 
And at the very least, even if we don't reach a consensus on this issue, which very rarely happens in philosophical or ethical questions, certainly not in a single conversation, at the very least, we're both going to leave knowing things that we could not have known if we hadn't asked the questions. Good conversations share a lot of the same qualities, I think, as good questions. And in philosophy, I think one of the most important things to establish with the person that you're having a conversation with is that you're both on, at least broadly on the same team, that you're both motivated by a desire to get to the truth or to love the truth in the Republic. And, and really in a lot of the dialogues uh, that Plato wrote about Socrates, we see this character emerge, right? The sophist, the debate coach, the person who cares more about winning and about persuasion than they do about getting to the truth. And you can just see when a sophist approaches Socrates, you can just see like where the conversation is going to go south because they're just they're going to dig in their heels and they're going to say, oh, yeah, justice is exerting power over other people. And, you know, they'll do anything they can not to have to admit that that they were wrong about that or that some example shows that this isn't the best view out there. And so I, I think good philosophical conversations, they start with really strong questions. They start with things that you're sort of curious about, you're genuinely curious about. And at some point, they establish this mutual sort of pursuit of the truth. Virtue ethics is at the center of what you call your philosophical method throughout the book. And it's something that you contrast with contemporary forms of sophistry that you enumerate, like big tech. You can probably remind our listeners of other ones. But could you talk about virtue ethics? Could you help our listeners understand it? And Megan and Paul, could you each say a bit about how you approach teaching it? So at the heart of virtue ethics is this idea that human beings have some sort of function or purpose. And Aristotle gives us an argument that that function or purpose, that it's to reason, right? It's to sort of reflectively guide your life. He also thinks we have a goal, and he gives this really interesting argument in the Nicomachean Ethics that we all share the same goal. We all actually, we want to be happy. And we want to be deeply happy. We don't want to just sort of have feelings of happiness or what we might call subjective well-being over the course of our lives. We want to achieve what he calls eudaimonia, right? A, a well-ordered, reflectively directed, happy life that we can share with the people that matter the most to us, with our family, with our friends. Okay, so based on these two things, he thinks what we can do is if we can think about excellences in human life, things that would allow us to achieve our function and to achieve happiness in characteristic ways. Those excellences, he calls virtues. So the analogy that we give to our students is, look, a knife, it's designed with a certain function. Its function is to cut things, okay? So a virtue of a knife, an excellence of a knife is to be sharp and to be made out of metal or to be made out of some sort of solid material. It's the same thing with human beings. So we can discover what these virtues are by reflecting on our function, by reflecting on uh, what it takes to be happy, what happiness consists in, and we can argue about it. When a lot of folks think about ethics, they think about kind of polling everybody about what their opinion is on some controversial issue right now. So we think like, what will be an ethical approach to Facebook? Let's do a survey and see how people right now think about privacy and Facebook will be acting ethically if it just tries to make the most people happy about what they think they want most right now. And you see this approach to ethics everywhere. And I think we've lost touch a little bit with this much more significant 2,000-year-old idea that ethics is a goal that we might be wrong about in our particular moment in time. Like we might right now all have certain kinds of distorted views about why privacy matters to us. 
But in fact, there's a much deeper human need that we have for a private life or family life or public life that's much more complicated than anybody's really had time to grasp right now in the moment that we're in. And just trying to see what everybody's thinking right now and kind of cultivating ethics as this practice of conducting surveys on each other, it's a mistake. It's a really tempting mistake for especially for democratic people like us, but it's a mistake. And virtue ethics gives us this really interesting provocation of are we the kind of people that we are meant to be? Like, are, what are our deeper reasons that maybe we're all missing right now and we need to uncover together? It also gives us a chance to understand why we might get our own ethical views wrong. And that there doesn't seem to be this kind of perpetual battle between relativism and absolutism. Virtue ethics kind of cuts this third way through that really hair-pulling, politicized debate right now, saying there might be really important principles and values that affect the really unique circumstances that you find yourself in your life. But nevertheless, there could be ways of living or a better or worse life based on kind of objective standards of what a good life would be that you ought to be working so much harder to uncover. And it's not just to live up to some abstract principles of ethics, but so that you can be happy and have the life that you want. And I think we've we have kind of lost touch a little bit with that third option, but it's one that I think is going to be really important for charting all of the weird puzzles that the world keeps throwing at us right now. Mm-hmm. I want to bring up another ism that you both discussed throughout the book, which is consequentialism. Could you say a bit about that and how virtue ethics might offer an alternative to consequentialism? So consequentialism tries to make our moral lives both significantly harder and significantly easier. And it's a very <laughs> prominent view right now. It's taught at many college campuses as like one of the dominant methodologies for approaching ethics. But the basic idea behind consequentialism is you are facing a decision. You're Mark Zuckerberg. Should you stop Facebook from existing? Take Facebook out of existence. I don't think he's deliberating about that very much right now. Or you're Paul and you're deciding whether you should give up eating meat in 2022. Or you're me and you're trying to decide how much money you should give to charity this year. Consequentialism says there's only really one principle you need to think about when you're trying to make this decision. And that is which of your options is going to have the most morally significant consequences. And usually you want to measure significant consequences by how much happiness you put out into the world as a result of your action. That's a version of consequentialism called utilitarianism. If I'm deciding where to donate money and I've got a choice about donating it to a local art museum or donating it to a charity that's going to cure malaria for a bunch of children in sub-Saharan Africa, Even though I might enjoy the local art a little bit more, I'm going to make way more people happy by giving it to the malaria charity. Consequentialism says, here's what you need to do. Give it to the malaria charity. So it makes your life easy in the sense that it gives you kind of a determinate judgment. It makes your life hard because you got to be doing this calculation every time you make a decision. And because there are a lot of opportunities every single day with every single decision we have to try to maximize or optimize consequences. So it might be that I just turn my entire life into this system that redistributes funds to people in need elsewhere, and there's just no art in South Bend ever again. Or it might be that I really internalize the message of consequentialism. The moral worth of my actions in my life depends on how consequential my life and my actions are in the world. And then start to feel like the pretty heavy weight of nihilism, realizing at the end of the day, I don't contribute very much to anything. 
like nothing that I do is actually that important or, or able to really address deep human suffering or really capture why the world is the way that it is. And consequentialism has only given me one, one way to know whether my life is good. I'm not meeting that demand. I despair. And we see this a lot. Again, you know, this worry. We live in a consequentialist world. People are always trying to optimize every dimension, how they spend their free time, optimizing how they are as parents, optimizing what they do with their money, optimizing how much they use technology, how much they sleep. In a world of constant optimization, we do feel pretty quickly like crushed when we fail to meet all these different metrics. And so that's one thing we really think virtue ethics gives you another alternative for being morally serious but also not accepting this idea that there's this single external metric that you should be judging the goodness of your life around. Yeah, and I'll just add here, one of the things that I think virtue ethics can really help us do is is refocus some of our moral attention and energy on the inner life of particular people, right? On our motivations and our intentions and the way that we're relating to the people directly around us. I think that is the arena of morality, of ethics. Like these are important ethical questions and and why you're making those decisions, what your motives are, what your intentions are. I mean, to me, if if your ethical theory, if your sort of, you know, overarching philosophy of life doesn't really touch those things and says, yeah, they can exist in some separate sphere, you're really just missing kind of the richness of the moral life. This leads right into my next question, which is about the many personal accounts that we find throughout the book, both of figures from the history of philosophy, each of you, as well as your students. Can you talk about the decision you made to include apologies, that is, personal accounts of why you hold certain ethical viewpoints and also how you've made certain decisions? If consequentialists give us this mistaken view that you measure how good your decisions are, how good your life is going based on the consequences out in the world, you can ask, like, what do virtue ethicists offer us for a way of understanding whether we're making good decisions or guiding our lives towards the good life? And the answer, and we teach this to our students and we practice it in our own lives, is developing this capacity to reflect on your intentions and reasons for doing what you're doing. And that's not something that happens just like in any particular moment. It's something that requires doing what Socrates says, trying to live an examined life, trying to really start to work on the true stories of what is forming the most important reasons for making your decisions about what you do with your money and how you raise your children and which religious kind of faith you cultivate. So we do, we put our money where our mouth is in the book and with our students. We say the unexamined life is not worth living. So let's start examining <laughs> our lives in ways that probably make our family members cringe because we're typically like are dragging our friends and family into this self-examination. But we think it's really important. For instance, in the chapter about money and the good life, it's really awkward and hard for a lot of us to talk about finances. It very much feels like a direct reflection on the kind of people we are or whether or not uh, we're successful, quote unquote, in life. But we want to show our students and the readers that these questions don't have to be totally debilitating. In fact, we can look and say, the reason why I have these kinds of anxieties about money or why I work is because for a long time, I've wanted these kinds of options for myself and my family. And this goes back to this, these particular events in my life that helped me realize the power of money over myself or over the people I care about. And like really starting to tease that out and then using that as your justification for deciding, here's what I'm going to do next. Here's what I'm going to give to charity in 2022. 
here's why I'm going to leave my job this year and in fact, not try to pursue a salary and instead live a really different kind of life around money so that I can become this kind of person for the people in my life. And so that requires getting into the messy details. And if you really believe in a method like this, we think integrity requires us to be willing to show how we're putting it into practice. And, and also we've discovered with thousands of Notre Dame students and with the people in our lives, starting to tell these stories and share them gives people, one, the opportunity to ask us interesting questions about what's going on and help us calibrate and work on those goals. But two, we just have closer friendships and relationships because people know our philosophical hearts and rather than just the masks and performances that we often put on for other people around these virtues. The big assignment in our class for our students is to write what we call a philosophical apology, right? And so an apology, you know, and this is the way that we explain it to our students. It's a narrative. It's, it's a story about your beliefs that also explains why you hold those beliefs. So it's also a defense, right? And this is a form that, that we sometimes lose in contemporary philosophy in the contemporary world. We either use stories to kind of manipulate each other or to, you know, excuse behavior or whatever. Or we use arguments to kind of push people around. There's a way in which fusing those two things and saying, look, here's where I'm coming from. The biographical stuff, it's not irrelevant to the reasons that I now hold for whatever belief that I have. And by telling you that story, I'm inviting you into this kind of inner conversation that I've been having with myself my whole life. I'm giving you my reasons. And now we can connect on a, a deep philosophical level. So so we have our students answer, you know, four big questions in our course. How should you treat other people? What do you owe to other people in yourself? That kind of ethics question. What should you believe? How do you figure out what to believe? What sources can you trust? And that sort of thing. Uh, should you practice a religion? And then what would make your life meaningful? So we have them at the end of the semester and really throughout the semester kind of develop these philosophical apologies. And we're constantly asking them to share these deep personal stories that go behind that, that, that sort of explain and, and help make sense of the views that they're defending. I have found that is just one of the most powerful parts of the class for me. It's just a moment where I'm literally being vulnerable and I'm saying, yeah, this is my story. And, and after the first time every semester when I share a story like that, I'll just have students line up and they'll say, that resonates with this other thing that was happening in my life. And they start to kind of see, oh, this is the space of philosophy. We'll have more of Griffin's conversation with Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko in a minute. Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together a group of Russell Berry Fellows to study in Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, known as the Angelicum, there to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one academic year from October to June. They take classes in ecumenism and dialogue, Judaism, and Islam. They travel to Israel for 10 days to study at the Shalom Hartman Institute and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land, and they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. If you're interested, you can register for an informative webinar and submit your application for the fellowship program at the Angelicum by April 25, 2022. For more information, visit iie.eu slash berry, that's spelled B-E-R-R-I-E. I want to move the discussion a bit to the other major 
element or the other major topic in the book, which is belief, questions of faith, right? You're both believing Catholics and your faiths arose in different contexts and are inflected in different ways. But I want to ask, why is it philosophically important to ask questions about the existence of God? And what do each of your personal faith journeys reveal about the different kinds of reasons for belief? I think we sometimes do a disservice to people who are curious about God or or we're starting to feel that like calling to a religious life, but then get hit with the really big metaphysical questions and debates right off the bat. When really a, a big part of developing authentic religious faith and finding its role in your good life is cultivating these small and then larger and more expansive desires. So one of the things we do with our course, and we do this in the book as well, is start with questions about what are you really aiming for in life? And we start with the really mundane and seemingly everyday. And then we try to get a, a level deeper. We think answering those questions is going to push you a little bit to what are your goals for loving other people in your life? And what does it mean to really like care for them and see them and appreciate them, even in the midst of sometimes pretty serious suffering that love brings into our own lives? And that gets us into this question of like suffering and meaning. And what does it mean to be really grateful for these people in your life and the good life? And these questions of gratitude, we argue in the book and in our course and have discovered in our own lives, push you into this idea. Are there things that are kind of bigger than us that are forms of good that are even bigger than the kinds of goods that we identify in the best things in our day-to-day life? And then maybe that's an opportunity to start to see God and start to see what a desire for God is in that life or to see God as part of this goal of the good life that you you maybe didn't understand fully at first, but all of these other goods that you're discovering on your philosophical journey are starting to point you into that direction. And then once we introduce the idea of God into your idea of what's motivating and driving you in your life, then the floodgates open for all kinds of really interesting philosophy and theology and revisiting those questions that we thought maybe were a little bit easier at the beginning of the journey. And I think that, one, when we're teaching students about how to do philosophy around questions of religious faith, and our students have all different backgrounds and starting points when it comes to these questions, it's important that we treat these authentically. Almost nobody reads St. Anselm's ontological argument, does the math, and then quickly decides, I'm going to go get baptized. I mean, I actually do know one philosopher who says that's how it went for him. But almost everybody I've ever met that has religious faith, it didn't go that way. It wasn't like they read a philosophical book and it turned on. Instead, it was cultivation of love and appreciation and attention that philosophy came alongside and fed and asked them the right questions and gave them like intriguing hints about what the answer might be. And theology gave them like visions and metaphors and stories and ways of trying to feed that desire. And then they brought themselves and their own experiences and frankly, their own like call from God into it. And that's where this dimension of their good life came from. And so we try to really honor how that process actually goes in real people's lives and and then introduce folks to philosophers who also honor and critique that process. I think one of the most important things that philosophy can add to a religious person's life is a way of engaging in, in a really clear, intelligible way the intellect, right? When we ask some of these religious questions or when we're part of a religious community, there can be a temptation to sort of shy away from the logical argument, from the rigor, and just say, okay, we've all sort of figured that out. And yes, if we have to debate some outsider who doesn't believe this, you know, we've got the reasons, okay. But for me, especially sort of in my own life growing up, it was always incredibly important to know why I 
believed what I believed. That sounds simple, but but it was important because it gave me a kind of agency. And and when somebody came to me and said, hey, look, we're Catholic and the Catholic faith teaches this, I could go somewhere and I could say, well, wait a second, does it really? Am I being presented with sort of true representation of the faith or does this person sort of just want me to think like they're thinking or whoever it might be? And so I think the arguments for God's existence and a lot of the philosophy that we do around religion, and there's a bunch of different uses for them. And depending on whether you're talking to other Catholics, whether you're talking to other Christians, people in other religions, atheists, whoever it might be, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can engage. But I would just say for me and sort of in this book, one of the important roles that arguments play for the religious person is to give them the sense of agency, to give them a way of engaging with those questions that, you know, hopefully empowers them. You introduce a distinction towards the end of the book. It's a classic philosophical distinction between the active life and the contemplative life. You just mentioned, Paul, the the concept of agency, and we often think about our moral lives in terms of what we're going to do, what we're going to decide. But you argue towards the end that, in fact, there's a lot that passivity and contemplation has to contribute. Could you say a bit more about that and why that's philosophically important? While we were writing this book, we were going through the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic. And one of the the experiences that Megan and I had at that time was leading very busy, very active, very goal-driven lives and slowly seeing those totally restructure. So I have this sort of vivid memory of watching my Google Calendar just like events drop off of it until it just became this like white grid. And... In that experience, you, you sort of have this miniature crisis. You think if those are the things that give my life meaning, if that's, you know, what it's all about, then what do we do? Do we just put our lives on pause for a while? Is there any way of even thinking about what a good life would be when you're forced to be kind of cloistered with the sort of immediate people that you love? Now, I think, yeah, philosophy gives us an incredible answer, which is yes. And in fact, maybe this is something that you should have been cultivating all along. And here's your opportunity to do it. So throughout the philosophical tradition, certainly Aristotle thought this, the Stoics thought this, uh, a lot of philosophers have, have thought this. There is a way of approaching the world contemplatively that's essential, that that you can't not do. And I'll, I'll contrast this too, in a way that some philosophers like Joseph Pieper have with this notion of just relaxing or chilling out or taking a vacation. Like, of course, those are important. But in, in our culture, those things, relaxing is often in service of the active life. Like, ah, I'm going to take a weekend off so that I can just like crush it at work. Now, that's not philosophers mean by contemplation, right? Contemplation is this almost mystical thing. You read about it in Aristotle when he says, one of the striking things he says about this is he says, it draws on the divine part in us. It's what's most divine, the most divine experience we could have. He ends the Nicomachean ethics by saying, it's also something that ultimately is beyond our grasp. We can do it. We can try to do it, but it's ultimately something that we can only just barely do because it is this divine openness to reality. Okay. So how do you make something like that concrete? Well, the Stoics is, that's where we go. And that's, I think, just one of the best examples of living this as a concrete practice. So during the pandemic, Megan and I were taking a bunch of these walks, talking about the book. We were, we're neighbors. We live like right next <laughs> to each other. We're taking one of these walks. So I was actually, I was out with my family. I was taking a walk And I turned the corner and I just saw this street full of cherry blossoms. And it just hit me, like the scent and the sort of visual of it. I just thought, that is amazing. And because I was reading a bunch of Marcus Aurelius, 
And he is writing this journal, like full of these meditations that are just on the most mundane things about bread and rotting fruit. And he uses that as jumping off point for mortality and everything else. Because I was reading that, I was really attentive to the experience I was having. I noticed this sadness. I'm like, why am I sad? This is beautiful. And I was sort of looking back and forth between these cherry blossoms, my kids. And I thought like, you know, I'm already sad because I know that tomorrow the cherry blossoms are going to be on the ground. And they're going to be like mushed up and like wet and disgusting. And, and I, I was thinking, I'm letting sort of the anticipation of what is coming intrude on the beauty of this moment. I'm not allowing myself to be present to it. And of course, I don't know if, if, if you, you sort of read some Freud, maybe you can see like my kids are in the stroller and I'm thinking they're going to leave me and I'm going to die. And, <laughs> right. you know, uh, Abandonment. <laughs> but yeah, just sort of, sort of taking that experience and then coming home. And because I was reading Marcus Aurelius kind of, putting that into a little meditation and just reminding myself, I put a little sticky note on my monitor, things that are beautiful are no less beautiful because they're not permanent. To be reminded of that on an everyday basis, it, it, it disposes you, it changes your soul in a way so that now when I look at my kids, I can just have that sort of impulse to be present, just to see them and just to enjoy that community, that life. So I think that's a, a very practical way in which we can start to achieve what philosophers have talked about is a life of contemplation. So it, it emerges from the book and it's emerged partly from this conversation that both of you are actually very good friends. And I was wondering as a final question, could you talk a bit about how friendship can contribute to our efforts to live the good life? How do we think of our friends? How do they help us along the way? How have you helped each other along the way? One of the things I love about reading the ancient Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle is that they talk about friendship all the time. It's not something that actually comes up very much in contemporary philosophy. And Paul and I both had the experience of getting PhDs in the discipline. And I never had a single class on friendship when I was here. But the amount that those three write about it, Socrates talks with his friends constantly. They have dialogues where they talk about other friends who aren't present and whether or not they're really good friends and how many orders of friendship they have. It's the most beautiful pieces about friendship in the Nicomachean Ethics. He, he has a chapter, it's his like guide to the good life in the Lyceum. And he tells his students, without friends, no person would choose to live, even if they had every other good. Even if everything else was going really well in your life, if you were missing this, you wouldn't choose to continue on in the good life. And I think we, in the era of social distancing, feel the truth of that maybe in ways that we had never really understood in our, in our lives before. But certainly for me, thinking about what that means philosophically and in my own life by having really close philosophical friends like Paul and people that we can talk about these big questions with and people that you can talk about faith and your questions about religion with and people that you can talk about parenthood and money and death with. It's a genuine gift. What Aristotle says about it and the Roman philosophers, too, is that our friends are like our second selves. They enable us to be part of good lives other than the ones that we currently have. Even if we don't control those lives and decisions, we just get to enjoy like the goodness of them and the people in our lives. And I also think in an era where a lot of our friendships and relationships are mediated by like Facebook or email or text messages, we sometimes forget this incredible gift and uniquely human power that we have to kind of perceive the good lives in other people when we really choose to pay attention to them. And so I think for Paul and I, again, practicing what we preach, and we, we really try to, to let our friendship and relationship also be accessible to our students and the other people that we do philosophy with, is showing like, 
You can send goofy text messages. Paul's a recipient of a great deal of like GIFs from me on text and uh, and be next door neighbors and exchange cookies and Christmas presents, but also devote some time to trying to be in this philosophical dimension of other people's lives. And it's a very real thing that, that's open to all of us, but it takes work and cultivation. Well, I want to thank both of you for your generosity, for your openness, and for being here on the Commonwealth Podcast with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Griffin. Megan Solomon and Paul Blaschko's new book is The Good Life Method, Reasoning Through the Big Questions of Happiness, Faith, and Meaning. It's available now from Penguin Press. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Proziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.